Hey everybody, welcome to Hobbs and Friends of the OSR. I'm your host Jason Hobbs and today we are continuing a series with two great guests, Eric Hoffman and Jose Lacario. How you doing Eric? Hey Jason, how are you? I am flipping awesome. How about you Jose? I am fantastic. Everyone's fantastic and it's like a Sunday morning and I'm actually kind of hungover. So there you go. Let's start with what have you guys been playing? I will mention that uh, I was at North Texas RPG Con and Eric was there and Jose uh, wussed out because something about a uh, anniversary or something. Right, Jose? That's right. I want to continue living. It was my anniversary. <laughs> Maybe we'll catch you next year then. Definitely. Gary Con. Oh, awesome. All right. Hey, Eric. You... Uh, it's a promise right there. <laughs> I think it is. On the air with everyone. I will be there. Nice. That's great. Uh, Eric, you got any games you want to talk about from North Texas? Oh, yeah. A lot of good ones. So I ran, uh, Edgar Johnson and I ran our second year of our Barrow Duel Tournament. And you were in that Hobbs. That's a, a two table competing groups of DCC characters. And there's a MacGuffin for the whole thing that no one's found. So that means we get to keep running it. And each year we just add in a little more crazy. This year was Purple Planet characters versus, um, Black Powder, Black Magic characters. And, uh, the two tables really got into it setting traps for each other and and uh, creative spell use, which in, in DCC can be really creative. So that was a lot of fun. And then uh, I also uh, had a chance to uh, get in a classic Battletech game with Gary Oliver and Bill Barsh and a bunch of other great guys who play like I played back in the day, and that really got my juices flowing for Battletech. And so put aside everything else I was doing to start a Battletech campaign running for you guys, which we've been having a lot of fun with. Yeah, that Battletech game is pretty fun. Uh, Jose, you can talk about that. You're involved in that since you didn't go to North Texas. Yeah, that's true. I didn't go to North Texas. But yeah, uh, he came back. Eric came back very excited about Battletech and had mentioned it to some of us. And a lot of us had played it previously. So uh, we pretty much just impromptu decided to play a quick game in Roll20. We all enjoyed it very much. And uh, furious downloading of uh, Mega Mech and Mech HQ and Mech Lab has ensued and uh, productivity has plummeted across the, the sector, but we're having a lot of fun with Battletech. It's a great game. Yeah, that is fun. And strangely enough, it's basically a board game, but we love it. And uh, Eric's thrown a lot of little role-playing elements into it, too, so it's it's interesting. Yeah, he's done an awesome job of turning it into a story game for us, hasn't he? <laughs> the ultimate story game, Battletech. There you go. <laughs> All right, so I want to talk a little bit about North Texas. I got to play in some awesome games. I actually ran the adventure, the excavation of the Tomb of Lornanane, which is in the uh, Hobbs and Friends of the OSR zine number one. It seemed like everyone had fun. I even got a blurb from one of the players. He said, this is the best game I played at North Texas. It would be Aiden Moore, which is Grady's uh, son. It's the only game he played for reference. No, he played a bunch of games, <laughs> including Paul Wolf's game, and he said that one sucked. Ha ha, Paul. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Paul. He didn't say it sucked. But... uh after that, we just called. We, no one could remember Aiden's name, so we just called him by his character's name, Blood. <laughs> How old was he? So that was pretty funny. Ten. Okay, making sure. Yeah, it was fun. We had a good time. I got to play in a game with Richard LeBlanc, which I hadn't done before. Obviously, I played in Eric's game, Black Powder, Black Magic, uh, Barrow Duel. We got our asses handed to us multiple times, especially the Lich at the end. Edwin Nagy, it's your fault, buddy. That's why we lost. <laughs> Paul ran his Philic Isles game, which was pretty fun. It was really exciting to be hanging out with my con group, as uh, Ryan Moore called it. It's it's great to see everyone that goes to a con, but it's really 
awesome to see the guys that you game with online a lot. And it's just like a reunion. I mean, if those guys weren't there, it wouldn't be nearly as much fun as it is. So uh, I really appreciate Eric and Paul and the Moors and Stokes and Frank Brooks. So it, w- it was really great going. And I, I would recommend uh, going to any of these cons, Gary Con, Game Hole Con, or North Texas, because they're small enough that you actually get to enjoy each other as opposed to fighting crowds all the time. So uh, I really like that. I threatened to run Kalmata Live multiple times at North Texas. <laughs> <laughs> But it never happened, <laughs> which is all right. I mean, we still had fun. I actually played Dark Trails with someone other than David Beatty running it. Dark Trails is a, a DCC chassis, Weird West Cthulhu game, which isn't nearly as good as Black Powder Black Magic, but that's all right. Right, Eric? That's right. Well, I'm, you know, uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So there's a shout out to David Beatty. Is that any, Is that everything we played? Oh, we played Holmes while we were there. Uh, Eric and I oh, were talking. Right. We had never played the Holmes edition of D&D, and so I was like, oh, we should do that. Maybe we'll talk about it on the air. And then I found a guy that had two Holmes rule books for $8, and so I bought both of them. And then we just went back, and Eric read them, and we passed around, made characters, and had a good old time. So uh, that was also a really good game, uh, and I enjoyed it immensely. Very deadly. Do you have anything to say about that, Eric? It was really fun. I uh, I never played it uh, or ran it, and there's a, just a couple of minor differences in procedure in homes, like from BX, which is what I'm most familiar with. But it it was it was a refreshing change. I don't I don't know that. Uh, well, I don't say so. Some of it was fun. Some of it was just really didn't make any sense. So <laughs> by the end of the adventure, the entire party was just carrying around daggers because. The rules as written, all weapons do 1d6 damage, whether it's a two-handed sword or a dagger, but a dagger attacks twice a round and a two-handed sword every other round. So basically a dagger is four times as effective as a two-handed sword in Holmes, and uh, we figured that out. And so when there was, we found a magic sword at the end, everybody was like, no, I'll just keep my plain dagger. <laughs> <laughs> that and the fact that everyone was killed, it was a TPK. So I lost two or three characters and a couple other guys lost two or three characters and Edwin Nagy won because he only lost one character and that's when he was murder hoboing at the end. So, well, that's somewhat historically accurate. Uh, that's what really undid the knights and their two handed swords was the advent of the dagger. That's right. The <laughs> arms race of the, of the dagger. That's right. Funny. Uh, I should mention that, uh, I, you know, they have that blue Holmes prentice rules and the journeyman rules. And, uh, it might be interesting to get that and maybe and maybe try running that because I've heard he's fixed the firing missiles into melee and the dagger thing and so I think that would enhance the game a lot just right there really you know I really like the Dexter initiative I thought that was cool it feels like there were another couple other things that I thought were interesting oh the parry I like the way that the parry was codified which has become a parry in other games where basically it just gives you a plus two to your AC and you don't uh, get an attack that round right. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, yeah, the Dex's initiative was pretty cool. I also remember Metamorphosis Alpha does it that way. And I, I'm still a fan of side-based initiative because I think it creates good tension, but it's kind of a middle ground between rolling initiative every round with modifiers, and so you can still have characters who are fast get some benefit. Uh, it might be weighted a little bit too much the other way because uh, first strike if with a dagger. Um, so a high, <laughs> a high Dex character with a dagger is by far the most deadly uh, thing in, in Holmes, which I don't know that I, I really love. But, yeah, it's, it's it was a nice change, um, and it was a lot of fun playing it in a pickup uh, environment. And we ran the the sample dungeon, which was one of the earliest examples of, um, you know, dungeon making 
um, after the OD&D era that was published, and, and a lot of people talk about that dungeon, and uh, both good and bad. Um, it was the it's kind of kind of silly um, in some ways, and it just uh, it's, it gives you appreciation of kind of how far game design has come, and the uh, the four goblins in a room that was 100 feet by 120 feet, um, which was basically their bedroom. So it's like a small, you know, arena football stadium size room that four goblins live in. But, you know, it also created some some pretty interesting tactical situations because the party actually surprised the goblins when they busted in the door. But because their light only went 30 feet and the goblins were in the middle of a 100-foot room, uh, it, it negated that surprise. And so they heard something in the darkness, the party did, but... The goblins then were able to kind of like move around and attack them um, out of the darkness. So, that, it, it, you know, it was interesting. Yeah, we'd fight our magic missiles into the darkness and half the party died and it was uh, it was fun. <laughs> and that's Holmes D&D for you. There you go. Uh, all right. Yeah. So that was fun for sure. Um, I guess we should move into. Oh, wait, we got to talk about everything about you, uh, which is a segment of the podcast where we try and give a tidbit about uh, our for sure myself and hopefully the uh, my guests can do the same and uh, maybe you haven't heard it yet listeners so today i'm going to go first and i would like to mention my arch podcasting nemesis julian burnick julian judge julian i know you're out there and i know you're listening and i'm going to tell this story about <laughs> north texas where julian was things were you know Winding down, my phone was dead, so I'm just trying to find some place to plug it in, and I happened to find a couch across the hall from the men's bathroom. Some other guys ended up seeing me there, and we started to have a conversation, and Julian showed up and talked to us for a few minutes, and someone said, hey, you know, when are you running a game soon? And he's like, oh, I got Tego Manor or something, and someone was walking by as Julian was actually walking into the bathroom, and uh, the guy goes, oh, yeah, Tego Manor, love it, and Julian yells back, hell yeah, and I'm like, Heck, man, only in Texas do you have someone walk into a men's bathroom and yell, hell yeah, at the top of his lungs. <laughs> I told you I was never letting you live that down, Julian. So, uh, Jose, you got one? Everything about me, I am comfortably lactose tolerant. <laughs> Eric? Yeah, so a little something that you don't know about me, Hobbs, is I actually applied to be on Spellburn podcast, but they, they, they turned me down, so that's why I'm here today. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, so let's move into this most important topic of the week. This, this is Hex Talk. Jose? There. All right, there you go. <laughs> we have the highest production values at Hobbs and Friends of the OSR, and we love to, you know, just use those for our uh, listeners. You got to tell me when the special effects machine has to be fired up. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> All right. So on Hex Talk, we actually have talked uh, at length, which means about five minutes before the show, about what we're going to talk about in this uh, episode of Hex Talk. And uh, we got a lot of feedback and from the listenership. And it was awesome. The first of the series was taken very well. And I would say maybe one of the most popular shows. I can't guarantee that, but maybe. So anyway, what we decided on is talking about Hex Crawl Elements and, uh, you know, basically what the components are to um, make a hex crawl work. And uh, what are we going to start with, Eric? Uh, we're going to start with the beginning, starting area, where the uh, characters uh, are when the campaign and hex crawl begins. So I guess we should talk about what it, what do we need in the starting area, Jose? What makes a good starting area? 
Well, a good starting area is a place where the characters can gather, um, new characters can join, uh, they can equip supplies, and it gives them a foundation for their journeys out into your hex crawl. It's a place where they can hire henchmen, sometimes meet NPCs, depending on how your starting area is configured, which I think we're going to get into next. Yeah, I think all the character types have to have a way to learn more stuff about their class or profession, right? So you're going to have to have at least a wizard in there to help teach wizards what's going on and possibly get more spells. You're going to have to have a church of some sort where your clerics can worship at or you can go to get healing. What else, Eric? Yeah, so, I mean, just the home base, right? Whatever that happens to be. And it can be a fully developed little community that the characters interact with like uh, the keep and the keep on the borderlands or just kind of a nebulous safe space, right? Where that stuff happens. It really depends on the focus of the campaign and, and what the objective is. So I think a lot of people would tend towards a well-developed city or town with uh, a bunch of stuff going on that players can get quests. They can get safety, you know, have their, their houses, their henchmen, their whatever. But, you know, there's also the competing side of that, or, or like in the West Marches with, that we mentioned in, in last Hex Talk. And one of the key components of that campaign design was that nothing ever happens in town. All the adventure is out in the wilderness, and the town is just simply the place you must return to at the end so that the next time, because it was an open table, drop in, drop out kind of campaign, that's where everybody started. Ben Robbins, the creator of that, had a real strong feeling that if you give adventure hooks in town, then the players, or at least his players, won't leave the town. And they'll want to have stuff happen there. So it was purposely kept very vague. And I used that concept once. I ran a, a long-term, like over two-year West Marches-style campaign online, and I did that, and there was virtually no... There was no map of the town. There was no... And it, the, I kind of had to draw the players along. Like, they, they, they fought me every step of the way for the first couple of months. <laughs> Because they wanted to go have role-playing experiences in town, and I, I kind of pushed back on that, and it ended up that I think they were more attached to Blackmire, which was the name of the town, after a while, because it was everyone's own perception and conception of home. And so nothing negative ever happened there. Nothing really good ever happened there either, other than you couldn't be attacked. But so after a while, just everybody was like, you know, it became that that mythical perfect home for everyone. And uh, af after a while, it was they were more interested in like defending, going out and you know clearing areas because they were too close to Blackmire, even though I never suggested that there was any hint of a threat to Blackmire from that stuff, which is kind of the opposite in the Keep campaign that I'm running now. Half the players, you know, the, the humanoid army is right, you know, massing at the caves, and half the players are like, you know, to hell with it, let's get out of here. Because some bad stuff has happened to them at the Keep as well as some good. Yeah, and I will say, as a player in both of your campaigns, it's interesting you mention that. Because uh, both in the Borderlands and in Kalmata, you both have taken a somewhat opposite tact of making the, the starting area more breathing with NPCs that have uh, names and their own personalities and their own characteristics and that we interact with on basically every session will interact with some NPC on some level. Like, for instance, uh, in Jason's uh, Kalmata campaign, he has Habiba Muna, which is like a mystic woman who who gives us uh, quests to collect herbs, and she'll sell us healing potions. And then in Eric's Borderland campaigns, there's 
there's people like Bone Grinder, who is the sergeant uh, who controls the inner Bailey, who we've interacted with, and Saren Moondance, who is an elf that we were able to occasionally trade magic items with. And these are all people we interacted with, and that's how I formed my attachment with both of those areas, the the starting town in Kamada and the borderlands. And so my character is one of those ones who had a vested interest in trying to, A, stop the, the humanoid army in the borderlands campaign because I always had good experiences there, whether I was carousing or interacting with the locals. I had a good reputation there. And uh, similarly, in, in Kalmata, my characters formed a detachment before Hobbs killed them which just recently happened last session. But because his NPCs do have life and do have personalities and they're all different, so it's kind of the opposite of the West Marches style where you you do have NPCs you can interact with and you do have definitive locations with their own presence and their own style. It's it's very nice. That's definitely what I was trying to do. Like uh, I've mentioned to both of these guys and other people in the past, I love emergent storytelling. And uh, I think it's easier for that to happen if there's a living, breathing location, which is usually the starting location, wherever it is. And um, how the players interact with that is where they start to become themselves, almost giving themselves a story or their own motivations, right? Yeah, I agree. That's because with BX or Holmes or any of the earlier editions, you're just a fighter. You know, <laughs> you have to, you, you're just a wizard. You have to breathe any life. There's no. There's no background skills or anything else to give yourself any background or life or history. So you have to build all that. And so having characters to interact with in your starting area and things to happen so that you can kind of build your personality, it really helps breathe life into an otherwise inert character. I wouldn't say that it's always a big uh, role-playing session interacting with them. Sometimes it is, but most of the time it isn't. I would say where the most interaction comes from is... Possibly the quest giving where, you know, like I have a random table of what's going on in town before the session starts. That's part of the procedure, which I took from Eric. He does the same thing. But usually after the session, that's where the carousing comes in. That's definitely happening in town. And if you did you do that in your other uh, campaign, Eric? I'm curious. Did you have carousing tables? No, we didn't do anything like that. And I I really think that uh, a lot of people have had a lot of fun with the carousing tables in Every game, really, like even if you talk about Paul's Philic Isles, where Mu the Cody Maza's paladin lost his paladin ship because he caroused and ended up doing something horrible that they basically kicked him out of the order for. Or if it's uh, Brad Black's uh, Tamo character who got arrested by Lord Leto in Sindanor in the Kalmata game and then started this whole session of you guys trying to save him. Astridus, who has a negative three reputation in the keep because he continually gets drunk and tries to burn everything down all, <laughs> all from carousing. I don't tables. know why they don't like that. <laughs> I can't figure it out. But you know, it's interesting because the random tables also drew us out into the wilderness because uh, for instance, I had a character who uh, suffered a gash, a penalty until he was able to bring a bandit Lord to justice. So I was constantly wanting to go to the area in uh, Eric's campaign where I knew there were bandits to try to, to complete this Gesh. And similarly, we had another character who had a quest to, I think it was kill a lizard man. And so it drew us out into those areas of the map. So it, it's another way to get your characters interacting with your session, your setting. Yeah. That starting area is what kind of drives all of this stuff while you're there. And if you don't have that starting area, then you're basically going to have to kind of define what the hex crawl motivation is moving on to the next uh, aspect of the show. 
why why are we hex crawling? You know, what is uh what's the history of that and maybe, you know, how are we motivating the player characters to want to hex crawl? What do you think, Eric? A good segue between the starting area and the motivation is also another kind of uh campaign element that kind of addresses both those and that's the points of light kind of campaign where the whole world is made up of small dots of civilization and those can either be your starting areas uh, and also your motivation because players have to move between them for whatever reason in the campaign. And so it forces a hex crawl. And that was really the first thing that I ever read in D&D that was, although the word hex crawl wasn't used, but gave that impression. And that was in the expert book, part of the BX line by Zeb Cook, where in the back it describes why characters would go out into the wilderness. And basically they're going from one town to another and... It describes like you know what each class of character would do to get ready for that. How would they would plan that trip, and then it goes into the the rules for how you would roll on the encounters. And it was real basic, basically just monster encounters, which is um, you know kind of the most basic form of hex crawl. And so in that kind of campaign, the points of light you have to go from one part of civilization to another to to meet some overarching quest goal, but. You know, other motivations can be a lot of old school players just like to explore, right? It's an exploration game, and it's like just I want to go find out what's there. In my keep campaign, the basis for that was that most of the rest of the world was actually pretty civilized. So if you were a a vagabond adventurer, you were forced to the borderlands to to try and push out and find a life for yourself because you weren't welcome in regular society. And that's kind of a common theme. Also, um, if you're looking for something, right, like one big thing, maybe the the overall purpose of the campaign is to go find something and you have to go out into the wilderness to find it. I don't know. I, those never really seem to work well because the players never want to sidestep to do anything else. That's true. I can see that. And then they're, they're not interested in doing that. And so then it's a lot of just wandering around, which, I mean, it's fun and your uh, random encounter tables are going to uh, give the character something to do. But I don't think they have that same feeling during the game that it does when you are in a in a dungeon walking around looking for stuff. I mean, and that's just my opinion, though, I guess. I think you're going to talk briefly about like the history of it and the concept that in the early game, I mean, all you had was, what, the Mega Dungeon, right? Yeah, that's my understanding. So I think both of what I've read, and I'm certainly no scholar, but what I've read of people who are scholars of the early, the beginnings, the birth of the game was that, both of the groups that grew up around D&D were based around a mega dungeon, either with Castle Greyhawk or Blackmore, and they evolved either from miniatures gaming or as D&D, and that was kind of the main thing, and they were both mega dungeons. And, you know, I think the, the wilderness stuff gets started when, for whatever reason, the players didn't want to go to the mega dungeon that day, right? And so that's really kind of the birth of the hex crawl. I, I read a lot about, not, not really a hex crawl like we're talking about it, but just the larger world and what's going on in... Um, first fantasy campaign that Judges Guild published for Dave Arneson's Blackmore campaign, and it talked about kind of the regional events that can happen, the things that drive uh, the random tables that drive the overall environment, and that's kind of a hex crawl component, I think an important one. Uh, and then also, you know, just talk about, so another reason for motivation, so if there isn't a mega dungeon, if you're designing a hex crawl campaign, a sandbox campaign from the ground up, if there's no big dungeon to explore, the players have to go find smaller dungeons. And that's the way I usually build my hex crawls or sandbox games is that 
you know, grab a small dungeon or a medium-sized dungeon from any published material, a one-page dungeon, or make your own, and drop them in various locations around the map. And so the players have to go find those. They don't take very long to clear out, and then you have to go find another one. And then when uh, you're finished finding them, the players will eventually, or even if you're not finished, they'll just decide that they want to go find out what's around the next bend, right? So if they're not interested in your dungeons or your mega dungeons, well, what do you do? I mean, what, what the heck's a GM to do, Eric? Or, or Jose, what do you think? Well, and again, that's that's the whole point of the hex crawl is once the appeal of the mega dungeon or just the appeal of a dungeon crawl in general has worn off, the hex crawl allows the player to still have that exploration component, whether your motivation is the wilderness is completely unexplored and someone at your starting area is paying you to map it, whether the local baron is chartered your group to clear the monsters so that his barony can grow. I mean, whatever your motivation is, the hex crawl allows players who have grown tired of that same dungeon element, no matter how many times you redress it, you're still underground you know, crawling around. <laughs> so that allows you to take the players to forests, deserts, to rivers, to the sea, anywhere else you want to go and has all those other monsters. Plus the hex crawl allows a level of uncertainty. You know, in that day, level one of the dungeon was for first level characters. Level two is for second level characters. Not, not completely, but there was a progression there. Hex crawls are not necessarily balanced for the player. You could see a dragon, you could meet an owlbear at first level. There's a lot of things that can happen, and I think that is another level of uncertainty that is exciting for players. For sure. Yeah, there are no balanced encounters. That's the way, that's like a mantra, I would say, to the hex crawl. Mm -hmm. So, do we feel like we have given enough information on how to make a starting area? I guess that was kind of what our focus was, and I, I mean, what, what do you guys think? I mean, do you think you can make a starting area right now, Jose, from what we've talked about? I think we could. I mean, if we summarize, you need to d decide on a motivation. What do you want your starting area to provide to your players, which is an extension of how do you want your campaign to run? Do you want that starting area to be a place they interact with, or do you just want it to be a place uh, where they end up at the end of each session? And if you want that to be a more keep-style place, what kind of quest givers do you want in that area? How do you want to establish the hiring of hirelings and henchmen? Do you want to have NPCs give out special items? And that's, again, in your campaign, we had Habiba Muna handing out potions. If you have a character that you can buy potions and, and items from like that, the hex crawl becomes a little bit easier for the players. Not easier in terms of ease of, but it, you have healing. You have, you have things that the players can use to be successful. So that's the whole thing is with your starting areas. Decide on your campaign, decide on what you want your starting area to be, and then fill it out. Yeah, it's tools and resources that enhance. Yeah. Yeah, it can Go be ahead. it can be as much or as little as you want it to be, and you can always, you know, add on top of it. You know, you could start with just it's a walled town and here's an equipment list and here's three NPCs, and that's enough, right, to get started. You can add in more as you go. Carousing tables are a great way to bring in the uh, you know, reasoning for adventuring like Jose talked about before, which fits with the the motivation for hex crawling. And also, um, you can also have a scarcity of things in the starting location as a reason to hex crawl, right? So, uh, maybe, you know, there's no, uh, plate mail, right, at this outpost and the players have to go to a more civilized place to get it. And so that makes them hex crawl, things like that. 
is another way to, by crafting the starting area, implant the motivation for hex crawling into the campaign. Yeah, okay. So I, I think that certainly helps. So uh, let's talk briefly about uh, what our next hex talk is going to be about. So we got the starting area. I think we kind of need like a, a map or a sandbox to uh, wander around in, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I think we're talking about actually uh, making a map. We're going to use a hexagrapher by Inkwell Ideas, which is a great hex map tool. They're working on the second one. We mentioned this on the last Hex Talk, and the guy was at North Texas. He's got a lot of cool stuff and counter decks and uh, dungeon dice or something. He's, he's got a lot of cool stuff. So if you're interested in this type of game, you should certainly check out Hexagrapher and uh, Inkwell Ideas' website. Why don't you talk a little more about what you have in store next uh, episode, Eric? Sure. So I'm going to grab uh, – I, I say Hexographer. I don't know. which We'll have to get Joe Wetzel, who runs Inkwell Games, to weigh in on that. But I say that, too. And – uh create a small map you can do a randomly generated map on there we're going to create a pretty small one to uh and i think hobbs is going to post it up what it looks like and then we'll we'll see what we get and you could do that through the program or there's lots of uh, we talked last time about lots of different blogs that have ways to randomly generate terrain and so you can do that or you can just pick terrain but we're going to randomly generate it and then that'll be the blank piece of paper, well, a filled-in piece of paper, if you will, on on what to do next. We're going to drop a couple of locations that players might want to go investigate. We're not going to flesh those out because that's that's what a regular adventure is, is the actual location. The hex crawl is the adventure to get to the adventure. And then we'll go through how to make uh, wandering encounters. One of the keys to me to make a hex crawl seem like a real world the characters are living in is to have I don't want to say a realistic, but a distinct set of uh, encounter tables per region so that the players know when they're in the Whispering Wood as opposed to the uh, the Abundant Plains. <laughs> yeah, those weren't the words I used in the in the prep. You guys miss such good stuff before we start recording. <laughs> PT version. Oh, it's right. So it's, it's the Whispering Wood and the Abundant Plains for this. We're going to talk a little bit about how to make those unique and then how, by having the occasional exception to the uniqueness, um, it really, and some personal experiences of what we've done that really drive the uh, emergent storytelling and the believability, the verisimilitude of the environment. Yeah, and I think it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to that for sure. Did you have anything to add about that, uh, Jose? No, I'm looking forward to helping coming up with some wild and crazy ideas to populate the random tables and maybe we can come up with a uh, couple of uh, starting NPCs for a uh, uh, for an area for the players to start at too. Yeah, we should probably do that. Most likely, we'll just start with saying it's just a safe place, like the the theory that uh, Eric mentioned previously, and then we could probably add some NPCs and quest giver type things and uh, how the henchmen work might work or hirelings or whatever. So now, I guess I kind of want to talk briefly about the state of the OSR, which is a regular segment on the show. It's uh, awards. I want to talk about awards, I guess. And at North Texas, they have the Three Castle Awards. And I don't know how long this has been going on, but uh, what I briefly researched is that it was set up by Rob Kuntz originally, and it's an award for uh, outstanding design in uh, role-playing game or supplement. And uh, the way that it actually works is is they have a steering committee out of hundreds and hundreds of um, people who submit their products that are submitted, then uh, the steering committee narrows it down to four. So when you get four out of these hundreds, it's a great accomplishment. And uh, I think we've mentioned on the show that uh, Stormlord Publishing's uh, Treasure Vaults of Zadabad was nominated this year. 
James Spahn had uh, The Hero's Journey, which was also nominated, and that is uh, a pretty good accomplishment for him. It's a good accomplishment for anyone. And there was actually a GoFundMe to get him there in case he won or just to see him talk about his product, you know, during the ceremony. It's a great honor, and uh, it, it would be good to be there. Zach Smith had his uh, Blue Medusa, Maze of the Blue Medusa was in there, and uh, Victorious by Mike, what's his last name, Eric? Uh, Stewart. Mike Stewart, okay. For me, obviously, Eric is one of my friends, and obviously he's a friend of the OSR, and we have our own little group, and all of us were excited that he was nominated. But it was interesting to find that there wasn't like a special table anywhere at the con. There was certainly room. All of the nominees, or all the finalists, sent product for, uh, obviously, the steering committee had to look at it, and the final four judges who are old grognards who are, you know, basically our forefathers of the the RPG industry, really. And uh, they got to choose who won the award. But like I say, there wasn't a table. You'd think uh, people walking through. I mean, these people out of their own money sent their product in and uh, at least try to get some publicity for their product or let people know what, how prestigious it is to even be a finalist and then not have any way to tell the people the the con goers, you know, that this is what's happening uh, seems kind of, I don't know, lame in some ways. It makes me feel like the award really wasn't that important to them. Uh, and if it's not important to them, then why would it, should it be important to anyone else? The ceremony itself was a shit show. <laughs> Basically, I mean, they didn't even explain it well. They made it sound like there were only four products submitted, not the hundreds that actually were. They didn't mention all of the, even what the products were. Uh, they said who won, and they mentioned that Zach had uh, something in, and uh, they mentioned the heroes something. They didn't even know what the product was, and they didn't mention uh, Treasure Vaults was out about it all. They didn't mention James or Eric, and they just kind of gave it to Mike, who won, which I have nothing against that him winning. And in, in fact, we were all pretty much sure he would win, and it was well-deserved. It was just the way that it was done was uh, trash. So I really want to say that, and um, hopefully – I mean, I've posted this on G+, and I've gotten some uh, – responses and ways that we could possibly make it better. Uh, Eric Jensen is making an award for his Trident Con, which is a con that's just starting. He's doing it right. He's trying to, you know, add the mystique or add the prestige that goes involved with people picking products from our niche of a niche industry and saying which ones are good and supplying them with awards. So I guess I just wanted to get that off my chest on on the podcast. I said I would and uh, and I did. Uh, does anyone, either of you two guys want to say anything about it? I just want to say that, that an award only has the impact and the gravitas that the people who are, are giving that award give to it. So if, if they don't take any pride or they don't try to make that award prestigious, like you said, then that award's not going to mean anything to anyone else. So it's kind of a travesty that they didn't work harder to make that award more important to the people that were there at that con for that award. Yep, and that's, that's totally what I feel like. Eric, did you want to say anything? No. <laughs> <laughs> we pretty much said it right all right so all right that's all that's all i'm going to say about that so check out the uh, golden crab for uh, trident con all right so here's some just upkeep type stuff uh the zine is done it's been sent out to four dollar plus patrons the pdf of it and i was uh selling and peddling hard copies of the zine at north texas and um Blackblade Publishing, uh, Taco John and Alan Grohl were nice enough to take my little tiny little product and put it on their racks, and they sold some for me. And that was uh, humbling, to say the least. Some people have written some reviews, and they're they're out there. I put them on the community, and uh, people seem to be enjoying it, and that's stunning to me. So 
Uh, I appreciate that for sure. Pretty sure you don't have it, Jose, but Eric does. Eric, you want to say anything? I'll put you on the spot. <laughs> so, uh, uh, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought we were done. I didn't. I thought you were just doing the outro. What do you want me to talk about? <laughs> Nothing. Never mind. <laughs> All right. So uh, the three patrons that are getting a shout out today are Eric Talvola, Gordon Cranford, and Chris Loricella, who I just met at NT at North Texas, and he did a one-time donation of uh, fifty dollars. So I, that was awesome, Chris. You didn't need to do that, but uh, we'll, we definitely appreciate it, and we'll use that to help pay for artists and writers for uh, future products. Uh, the OSR Encounter Contest with Gaming and BS is uh, done. Uh, we have all the entries. We're collating them, making sure we have them all. And uh, as soon as my hangover is over, I am going to <laughs> check those out and put my winners in and then send it to Sean and uh, Brett, and uh, we'll get those awards out for people. So thanks for everyone who entered. You guys want to say anything else? You got any last things to say? Yeah, I'll say that uh, Julian Burnick... <laughs> There will be an NPC hireling in every campaign henceforth named Julian Burnick, and no one will hire them. In essence, you have become the new Peripi. <laughs> Long live Peripi. Uh, Peripi's dead. <laughs> All right, so I'd like to say that the community and G Plus is 302 people. We, we broke 300. I'm stunned into silence about that. Thanks, guys. How could anyone reach you if they wanted to tell you what you should be talking about in Hex Talk, Eric? Uh, on the Google is Eric Hoffman or stormlordpublishing.com. What about you, Jose? I'm on the Google, too, and you can look me up on Lycos or Hotbot. <laughs> <laughs> You're never going to top the ICQ number, buddy. That was classic. <laughs> yeah, I actually got my ICQ back after that. I, I got that back, by the way, and it's now owned by a Russian company, so I can no longer <laughs> use ICQ. I'm switching to MSN Messenger or AIM. All right, nice. All right, so you can reach me on the Twitters at Hobbs Indeed, or uh, the podcast has its own Twitter account, OSR and Hobbs. Uh, like I mentioned, you can go to the Patreon, uh, patreon.com, OSR and Hobbs, and become a patron if you'd like. I actually have a website now. It's HobbsandFriends.com. There's not a whole lot there, but, hey, it exists, and uh, it makes me feel more important, so take that. And you have to be 21 or over. No, that's just to listen to our Twitch games. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, so uh, anyone want to say goodnight or anything? Till next time. All right, Hobbs and Friends of the OSR. This podcast is a member of the Audio Dungeon Podcast Network. For more podcasts, visit audiodungeon.com.